So, um, so we've known each other for um, just about 30 years, more than 30 years. More than 30 years. Which in the context of the development of anthropology is actually quite a long time already. Yes. Because things have changed right. with, with the primitive peoples in the world. Yeah, and they've changed at an accelerating pace in the recent decades. There are going to be no more tribesmen left to study in the too distant future. So do you feel you got in with the other one just in time? Yes, I think that that's an understatement. When I walked into my first village, I realized that, oh my God, this is going to end soon. These people are one of the most astonishing peoples I've ever heard about. And that's why I studied them so long. So when you say they were astonishing, to what extent do you feel that is because they were a particular people? Or is it because these people were in a particular historical context? I think a little bit of both. Uh, for example, I read lots of ethnographies about native peoples. You'd see you know, tin cans in the village, and outboard motors parked in the river. But the Anamama were just stark naked and pristine. But they have a penis strip, surely. Well, they'd be naked without one. Yes. Anyway, I've, I brought an Apache Indian from New Mexico with me who's been trying to be native, go back to the old ways of the Apache. He always wanted to. He'd been following my work. He always wanted to go visit the Anamama with me. So I invited him to come along on one of my trips. And we went to one of the remote villages and he broke down and cried. He didn't realize how much of his own culture his people had lost just by looking at the animal. So when you say that, that makes it seem as though there's something really attractive, romantic, alluring about the Yanomamo culture from the point of view of your friend. From the point of view of a native Apache who's been trying against very great odds to kind of resurrect the image, the feeling, the sense of being in a special culture. Yes, he realized a great deal of the Apache past as well. But, but you are known for producing what some might say are very honest characterizations of the Yanomamo, and others might say are um, very well, characterizations that make them appear very unattractive. You use words like hideous and smelly and so on. Very rarely, but they, they get picked up on. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I once was accused of emphasizing or exaggerating violence among the Anamama, and it came largely from an article that Marvin Harris had written that was very critical of my work. And in the span of one paragraph, he used, he found and sought out every possible derogatory thing that could be twisted into an exaggerated version of what Chagnon says about the Anamama. It was just hideous what he, I mean, if I said that about the Anamama as sort of the characterization of the Anamama, what I think about, think about them, it was just completely distorted. So a lot, a lot of the bad rap that I've gotten for exaggerating Anamama violence has been in some measure the consequence of it of how some of my colleagues have twisted my words. So do you want to back away from the notion that they are a very violent people? No, not in one moment. They are very violent people, but that's not the only thing about them. I've said lots of things about the 
So you have to read my work as a general body of work, not just pick and choose among where I have said very specific things. Yeah, because I mean, the thing, picture that comes across to me of, of you with the Anamamo is that you're incredibly friendly with uh, certain individuals. You, you got very warm relationships, mm -hmm. and much of the time everybody is having very quiet, peaceful lives, yeah. just going about their regular farming business. That's, in general, uh, they do a lot of time picking gnats out of each other's head, telling stories, myths, and snorting drugs, and all of the pleasures in life. Yeah. But they, if you were to budget their time on a, on a motion activity basis, probably they spend very little time engaging in violence as most people in our own culture, even soldiers. Well, this is like this, this ridiculous debate that's going on, or has, I wouldn't say debate, I wouldn't uh, want to grace it with those words, but um, a ridiculous kind of concept that's been in primatology for the last few years, which is that the amount of time spent in aggression is a useful variable. Mm. So uh, the several papers have been published saying, look, it turns out that primates only spend, say, between half and one percent of their time, and they, even that may be an exaggeration, in being aggressive. Therefore, they say, aggression is unimportant. That's not true. Please comment. Right. Well, I, I once heard Robert Trivers make a comment about the cost of engaging in some kind of altruistic attitude. But if you look at the circumstance, uh, kissing a baby on the cheek is relatively inexpensive, but snatching that baby out of an oncoming railroad train is potentially a very expensive cost to the altruist. So therefore, the point Trivers is making, the amount of energy invested in what you do is not necessarily the best measure of its consequence. Yeah. No, it's still an absurd way to think about it, and clearly violence is hugely important for its functional consequences, as you have argued. But, uh, but can we just come back to this, this question of the, the place of the Yanomamo in the understanding of uh, people living at that level of subsistence? So there are these arguments that um, Brian Ferguson and others have made saying that uh, the arrival of the colonialists increased the um, frequency and maybe the tenor of violence. That may be, but I'd like to see the evidence that Brian Ferguson can muster to demonstrate that in a convincing way. Now, how does he know that it hasn't decreased the amount of violence? Well, you're being very sort of hands-off, but uh, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, uh, given your reputation for confrontation. Um, I mean, well, you have all the dirty pictures, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, should we really even uh, be so uh, accepting of uh, that, that view? I mean, there are uh, many, many cases in which you can point to in which the arrival of the colonialists uh, leads to a reduction of violence. So, uh, you know, the British, when they go in there, they're constantly creating peace among uh, different groups. I know the situation in South America less well, but but uh, you're implying that actually you think that the Ferguson view has got some credibility. Or, or no, Brown doesn't know anything about the Anamama. He's a good researcher. He reads everything. In fact, I discovered as a consequence of his research a publication that I had made you know, 20 years earlier that 
I had forgotten about them. Okay. So I had to rely on Ferguson to dig it out. But he's got a kind of a worm's eye view of what life is like in this kind of a society. He has images of Yanomama warriors guarding the trails between A and B to protect their investment in the trade zone or something. And that just simply is not true. So I've got a dog in this race um, because, uh, you know, as, as you know better than anybody probably, uh, people who have tried to do surveys of the uh, frequency, importance, uh, degree of violence in hunter-gatherer warfare reach lots of different results. Some people say there's, there's a, a lot of warfare, some people say there's not really very much when you consider all the different mm -hmm. peoples. So what um, Luke Loaki and I did was to look at just the cases where hunters and gatherers are neighbored by another society mm -hmm. of hunters and gatherers not by farmers. And what that served to do was to show that there's an extremely consistent pattern in the relatively few hunters and gatherers for whom that particular context applies. And, and the consistent pattern was there was just consistent war. It was a totally Hobbesian world. There's a remarkable book about an English prisoner who jumped ship off the coast of Australia. William Buckley. William Buckley. If you read that little short book, you really understand how prevalent fear of your neighbors from attacks by your neighbors, theft of your women by neighbors. And it was everywhere that Buckley went. He moved over a large area of central Australia. That Although he was actually a member of a particular group. That right. Right. But it was just incredible. I mean, they, they read just like my descriptions of the Aramana. Yeah. No, or Helena Valero's descriptions of the same people. We should be very confident that this is the way in which small groups of humans have organized themselves right. I think forever. The, I think at the beginning of a recent book I wrote, it was well, this yearning for the golden age of the past and how nice it must have been during simpler times in our own past, like even hunting and gathering societies. And what I discovered is that life was very much filled with terror of your neighbors constantly in a position, sort of like Hobbes' argument, foul wet weather is not a shower or two, but a tendency therein for months on end. So you're always, you always have your eye open the frontier and make try to make sure that the guys out there are on the other side of the moat. So <clears throat> one of the uh, areas in which primitive warfare has been most described is in New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And there we have the, um, the famous descriptions of the Dani, mm -hmm. where they have um, groups of men confronting right each other in rather ritualized arrangements, uh, and in which somebody gets a a spear in their foot, and, and then everyone else uh, screams and says, let's call it off, and uh, they go home. That's not exactly true about Donnie or, or New Guinea warfare in general. Mervyn Megan, who's an expert on the New Guinea area, once told me a, a story about, you talk to some of these guys that have been engaged in that, and every once in a while they'll tell you a story about, oh, my Uncle Fred, he leaned over, just the wrong lane, coughing, <coughs> and he died of it arrow point that long that had been embedded in his body for 25 years. And so the number of casualties in those so-called 
symbolic wars was actually much higher than most anthropologists are aware of. So maybe they've been um, underestimated, but surely the, the big point that actually Megat made is that every now and again, when groups confront each other, one group will turn out to be much larger than another. Maybe it's alliances in several villages, and one village didn't send the men they were supposed to, and another one's been riddled by disease, and another one uh, just had some misfortune, and all of a sudden they're on their own, mm -hmm. and now what happens was a massacre. Right. So what I wanted to ask was, to what extent do you get parallel division between ritualized battles and massacres in the Yanomami? Well, first of all, I don't think, uh, except when you take a look at their overall pattern of ways that they fight, for example, chest powder, that can be described in, in a fairly meaningful way as some sort of ritual that they go through, although there are occasional mortalities as a consequence. From the chest powder? Oh, yes. Yeah. Pound somebody on the chest hard enough in the right spot and break their heart. Because how big are these clubs? No. Fists. Oh, it's just fists. Yeah, sometimes men will conceal a stone in their fist, which is in my area. Not kosher, but in other areas they apparently do use stones inside their fists. Huh. But the next level up, I would say, is club fighting. And that can get lethal, but it tends to... Each step on the escalation of their violence tends to be more lethal as you ascend the scale of violence. So chest pounding or wrestling in the mud, that's almost no casualties. Chest, uh, club fighting with nabrushi, which is these big, long clubs that you know, be 10 feet long sometimes. So how heavy would one of those clubs be? Well, sort of like a pool cue. Oh, okay. And you get whacked on the top of the head with a pool cue and it ruins your whole weekend. Yeah, right. But then they also have a kind of club called a But it's a hardwood bamboo, uh, hardwood palm club that's sharp as a razor. You can make palm wood really sharp. And if you get hit on top of the head with one of those, that's frequently, I'd say 50% of the time, it's lethal because it's like getting hit on the top of the head with a sharp sword. And this is the case where one guy is just allowed to take a swipe at the other one and right. wait for the other one to come back. And guy that he's hitting on top of the head has to remain fixed. And Bad manners to dodge. Right. Except if he starts swinging sideways, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, okay. Should be up and down. Yeah. Incredible. And then, finally, the, uh, the most deliberate and most similar to what we would call war is raiding with the intent to kill. And this is not ceremonial at all. They sneak up on a village and wait until everybody's asleep, and then the first man that comes out of the village to urination urinate is the one who's likely to get nailed. And very often in villages, I've been in villages like this, where they don't defecate or don't urinate when they're at war in the village. They, in order to avoid, being, order to avoid a being a victim. And lots of villages that I've been in, they would take advise me to put my pack up against the, the low end of the shop and where people can get underneath and shoot at you and my camera equipment stuff like that because they were expecting raiders and in one village the head men of the village in whose house I normally would sleep in all villages I always sleep 
near the headman house. Hmm. He actually crawled about 30 feet on his hands and knees and belly to my hammock and shook me and asked me to load my shotgun, which you know I always kept it at my hammock side, to go out and shoot somebody because he heard raiders. And I just said, I'm too tired. I'm just going to fire it up in the air. We'll call it a night. And I did. And they all went back to sleep because anybody who would want to raid that village hearing a shotgun go off in it, probably best turn back because they don't like villages that have shotguns in them. Yes. And I mean, and that conforms to the general principle that we see in chimpanzees, which is that, that if you're detected on your potential attack, right. then you call off the attack. Because the last thing you want is to get into a fight. What you want to do is just kill That's someone right. and get out of there. And their entire strategy for raiding is... They do a mock, uh, what do you call it? Their word for, they have a special word for a, a mock battle that they make up a, an effigy of the person they want to kill. Mm. Usually on the trail that's made quickly out of a pot of leaves with some vines. And they pretend they're going to attack this, and they give it a name, like some specific human being in that village. And they sneak off train all these young guys to keep concealed and get the best shot. And they do this several times en route to the enemy. And then when they get to the village, somebody will eventually get a shot at somebody taking a pee at dawn. And hopefully they'll hit the guy. And then they have a very far way of retreating. The front guys will run back and then kneel on their hands and knees until the next group of guys pass by them, and then they run back, and they do that all the way back to their own village. So it's, it's a fairly well-organized strategic strike, so to speak. But when they get far enough away from the village that they, they don't think their victims can bypass them, what you never want to have happen is them get around you. So there are some societies in which the <clears throat> aim is to do more than just attack and kill one. I mean, Eskimo societies, Ernest Birch describes regularly trapping people in the hut mm. and then finding a way to kill all of them. Mm. Um, in the Anamamo, it seems as, as though you often describe uh, smaller incidents where, as you were just saying, you kill the guy that's come out to urinate and then you go back home. But the Anamamo have something that is the ultimate kind of warfare. It's, their word for it is no more money which could be translated as dastardly trick, where usually in, in confederacy with some other village that is an enemy of the village you're fighting, you have them conceal themselves outside and invite your putative friends into the village to dance and feast and eat a lot of food, sing chants at night, and then sleep in the village. But sometime during the night, your guys arm themselves with axes or clubs, and they infiltrate all of the campsite campfires that their visitors are in. And on the signal of one of them, like some hoot or some whistle, they fall upon these sleeping victims, and they can kill maybe 10 or 15 at one time. And that's called a nomoi. And there's a wonderful description of a particular event in a book by uh, hmm. Secrets of the, no, 
can't remember his arrangement. Mark Ritchie is the author, but he tells the story of a, a young man, an, old, an older shaman who's been through all of this before missionaries came and anybody from Venezuela, the outside world came in and actually documented some of the violence that went on during his lifetime. It's, it's really grim. It's like reading John Morgan. So, any battles? Do, 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 I, I can't remember if you've described where one village and another village do something like the Dani, of, of a meeting at a certain place uh, in order to have a battle. No, they don't do anything like that. Any sense of, of why that is so different in the Alamama from uh, some the, of the other? It's too see? risky. I mean, they, <laughs> each side could, realizes the, the possibility of getting injured or killed in such an encounter. They, the Alamama like to inflict damage when their opponents least expect it and then retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so you're describing all of these um, raids. These raids. Um, were you ever uh, there to the point where you saw the, the attack? No, I, I never wanted to see the attack. They always wanted me to go along, mainly because I had a shotgun. And I absolutely refused to do it just to be, be neutral, because I knew if I sided with any particular village, I was opening it up for me to get picked off as one of them. In fact, one group of Yanomama that I made first contact with, the Ibrikorobateri, I had become so identified with the village I lived in that on my first visit to them, they tried to kill me that night with axes. But because I was what they say, Moyawe, that means alert, shining my eyes around, I had a flashlight. And I, they told me in my home village, when you ever go to a strange village, always inspect your surroundings and you're likely to have a better sleep without getting killed. Well, they approached my hammock to kill me with the three brothers, and I knew all of them. They, I mean, I learned who they were afterwards, after the first contact. <coughs> they approached me and intended to bash my skull in with axes. But I kept waking up, shining the flashlight around, and they knew I had a shotgun. So I left the village the next day. I, there was something unsettling about being in that village, and I, I detected it was kind of a fifth sense. So I left, and the, vic the village was divided on its intention to kill me. Some of them wanted to kill me, some of them wanted to be friendly to me. and. Immediately, a group of the friendly ones volunteered to get me out of the village back to the canoe where I had all of my gifts for them stored. Anyway, they didn't kill me. But if they had, they probably would have sung a song that goes something like this. Shetty Kasiwaka, ah, 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 That translates into the arrow is red, meaning it has blood on it. It sounds like a note of triumph, too. Yeah. It, oh, and you ought to see the lineups. I've, I've been in lots of villages where the men were leaving on these. But in one village, there must have been 75 warriors. And it was the first time I saw 
a raiding party leave, and it was at night. <clears throat> you can't see much at night. The village is deathly silent. And then the shriek came out of one corner of the village, and the man that came out was rattling his bow against all of his arrows, which makes a big racket. And he was bragging about, I'm going to slay them right down to the last baby in the village, even kill their dogs. Uh, everybody, 75 men, one at a time, joined the line in the middle of the village until all of them had gotten there. It must have taken 30 minutes for that village. Yeah, it was, was a combination of allies, three different villages. Then it got silent again. Oh, Christ, they're on to me. They're going to get me. And then all of a sudden, that blood-curdling scream came out of one man. I recognized who he was. He was a great singer. His name was Toro Koiwa. And he sang, Waduba Naiki Naiki, Waduba Ya Naiki, I am hungry like the meat hungry buzzard. I am hungry like the wasp that eats its carrion. And on and on and on. He sang about four stanzas, and then all of them in unison sang the same stanza. It was really frightening. I had goosebumps running up and down my, from my toenails to my ears. <laughs> anyway, at the end of this, <clears throat> Totokoiwa got them all assembled in kind of semicircle and they faced south and east, the direction of the village that they were headed to, Paranoatei, and they shouted three times in unison, Wah! 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 And then, after the third repetition of that, they ran out of the circle where they were all gathered, each one in their own direction, and they went, They were ceremoniously vomiting up the flesh that they had just eaten as carrion birds or wasps. <laughs> then the next morning, they repeated the whole thing all over again, same procession, but this time I could see. <coughs> and they left after it was over, went off to Paranotary. They killed one man on that raid, but on the way back, one of them got shot right through the lung cavity, just above his heart, and the arrow came out the other side. They were being chased by the people yeah, many times? Yeah. The raiders had gotten around them, ambushed them on the way back, and they got this one guy. And the arrow went all the way through his chest, the tip of it was a lahaka, a broad-leafed bamboo arrow point. So one of the guys pulled the arrow out, and what he did was bite it with his teeth and pulled it all the way through the wound. When they got back to the village, they, I mean, he was really in bad shape, <clears throat> and they had this taboo. When a guy is shot with a lahaka tip arrow, you can't drink any water, which is the dumbest thing to do. He should have had a lot of water. So he was emaciating in his hammock for about two days, really thirsty. And I, I, I intervened in their culture. You're not supposed to do that. The cultural revolution wasn't good right. enough to handle this particular no. problem. So I ceremoniously made a big, 
aluminum pot full of what essentially was lemonade. And I ceremoniously took two aspirins, crushed them, and spread the powder all over the lemonade. And I solemnly warned them, don't any of you touch this. It is unasuna, which is their corruption of the Spanish word medicine. Unasuna. Now, so this is really powerful unasuna. If anybody drinks this who doesn't have an arrow, it's going to be bad news for them. So none of them drank, drank any of it. I gave the wounded man a tablespoon of this unasuna. His eyes lit up. Two of us then knew what it was. Lemonade. Excellent. But he didn't say. No. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the, did have some aspirin in it as well. Yeah, right. It was the medicinal power of the aspirin. Was the yeah. Cure. Yeah, right. So you were incredibly intimately involved. Um, you, you made a big study of kinship. Mm, yes, a really big one. Um, I wanted to ask about kinship because a couple of weeks ago we had the Boston bombing here of two brothers. Uh, two, uh, several pairs of brothers, I think, were involved in the 9 11 uh, attack um, on the Twin Towers. Um, the assassination of uh, Caesar began with brothers. Mm -hmm. um, did you see any evidence that uh, beyond kinship just being in general really important mm -hmm. as a sort of structuring force, uh, did brothers? Uh, take a special role in relationship to the violence and supporting That's each other? That's an interesting question. Martin Davis has been interested in that. In his book, Homicide, he has cases of collaborative homicides in which close kids would collaborate in the killing of some third person. And he couldn't get a lot of data on it. He used some of my data. He showed the slide again recently. He's, he's now at the University of Missouri. And he showed the slide in the talk that uh, David Haig attended, I believe. David was at that same conference. It was generally, a lot, a lot had to do with evolution by that way. Anyway, collaborative killing, the perpetrators are related to each other, but unrelated to the victim is an interesting question. There aren't too many populations where you can get data on right. it. Right. And I have a lot of data on that, more than what I gave to Martin Daly. But now that I'm at the University of Missouri, I have all of this research data that I've been accumulating for you know, 30 years. And I have a, a postdoc that they gave me. And he's a wizard at computer and statistics. And we're now just going to kick ass with all the papers we're going to okay. go with. All right. And one of them is going to be on collaborative killers because Martin Daly asked me from the from giving me his paper, looked down, Matt, do you have any more data on collaborative killers? I, I've got this little sample from you, but what else is there? And I'll give him the answer. Because a brother is a really useful ally if the first individual to make a move is taking a risk. And you know, he can count on the brother to support him in a way that That's, maybe yeah. he can't count on others. Well, that really tells kinsmen from non-kinsmen because the, the, I did an article on film that I called The Axe Fight, in which I see many times. 
have you read the article about the, the relatedness between the two teams on the axe fight? And the ones, I mean, they all came from the same village, but the coefficient of relatedness among I thought one was a visitor. They had fissioned away, yeah. and they had become a separate village, but the fission was so recent, and that's what caused the fight, because they came back and expected to be treated as visitors, mm -hmm. when in fact they were relatives. Mm -hmm. And they were expecting the local guys to give them all the meat, and the women to get all the plantains for them, and they were just you know, sort of like the welfare system, they were picking out on welfare. Yeah. And they wore their welcome. Anyway, the, the analysis I made with one of my former students, Paul Bugos, indicated very clearly that there was a really strong bias in how these two factions developed and the coefficient of relatedness among the, the, each faction was much, much higher than the coefficient of relatedness of everybody pooled together. And there were really interesting things that came out of that. Um, full brothers separated from cousins and stuck together in certain scenes in this. And they, in turn, stuck together as co-fighters against third cousins. <laughs> and it was just it was like seeing a procession at a funeral where mom and dad are in the first car and the corpse of the babies in the second car, and then cousins are in the third car, and distant kin in the fourth car. You do with us. Yeah.